You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, everyone. This is David Tatashore, lead engineer and studio manager of the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm reaching out to ask for your support during our end-of-year fund drive. A contribution in any amount supports our weekly programming and our mission to make the world a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious place. Plus, you'll receive exclusive member benefits like monthly playlists, discounted event tickets, party invitations, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Make your gift at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Happy holidays from all of us here at Heritage Radio Network. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. Listening to Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Arway, and welcome to the end of the year. It's almost uh, it's almost holiday time in December, so we're talking about a delightful food that has caused a huge controversy over the last decade. Um, you might find it on um, your holiday spreads. It is a delightful, bougie, French traditional uh, spread or appetizer. It is called foie gras, and I'm delighted to talk with the author of a wonderful book that sort of documents the the morality behind food um, and and uh, the politics of the food as well. So Michaela de Souza is on the line. She has written the book Contested: Foie Gras and the Politics of Food. How are you, Michaela? Hi, I'm great. How are you, Kathy? I'm good, thanks. So. Um, a lot of people encounter foie gras and maybe different things come to mind. I think of a delightful, traditional French dish. But as you've um, really delved into in this book, um, over the last decade or so, in America at least, it brings to mind all sorts of uh, concerns about animal welfare and, um, and yeah, basically animal welfare. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, what inspired you to write this book? It's really fascinating and uh, it, it it covers a lot of ground, but uh, let's start out with uh, what got you involved. Um, well, this book, Contested Tastes, actually started as my dissertation mm-hmm. um, in graduate school as a sociologist. And I was interested in the politics of food, people fighting about and talking about and trying to make the food system better. Mm-hmm. And I was living in Chicago at the time, and all of a sudden there was a news story on the front page of the Tribune about chefs mm-hmm. fighting about foie gras. Fighting, And yeah. I, you know, barely knew what it was at the time, and so started digging in a little bit. Um, and as I did, I got more and more interested because I really came to learn that foie gras, something I had barely heard of before, could really be seen as this 
we could really see it as sort of a prism mm-hmm. for so many different issues in terms of the food system and the politics of the food system. Right. Um, and also it brought in so many different it brought in so many different players and so many different points of right. view. And also a microcosm of sort of of the evolution of food production. You know, from a very simple, very much so. yeah, small farms to a more industrialized system. Um, mm-hmm. So this very is, much so. And yeah. so I took it as let me take let me take this thing and just study the heck out of it from every angle that I can. Did you eat a lot of it too? <laughs> I did. <laughs> Good. Good. You need to. Um, yeah, it's a well done. It's a really great job. It's a really fascinating book, and it. You know, a lot of people would come across articles like this of chefs of one persuasion, you know, fighting for keeping foie gras on the menu because it's such a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's such a time-honored tradition. And then you see another wave of, of folks uh, taking it off the menu and, and uh, you know, what the customer wants is, you know, what we should do. And then, you know, they have warring groups of activism on both sides. So mm-hmm. it is a really right. rich topic to explore. Um issues of food morality and uh we you know today now there's so much awareness about animal humane issues animal welfare um and so forth so foie gras might not come to mind but it is fascinating the story that you've documented um let's step step back a little bit and describe exactly what foie gras is and how it's made if that's all right sure yeah well and so it's interesting because one of the one of the things that came up when I first started doing the research is most people, most Americans anyway, don't know anything about foie gras. Yeah. You know, it's, it's only available at, at a few types of places, a few places. It's not very available at all. The, you know, the USDA, which keeps track of the foods that we eat, doesn't even document foie gras. That the number that I found in the book was the average American eats .00002 grams. Uh, pounds of foie gras. Sounds about right. Which means that some people are eating it once once a year, and most people are eating it not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is a pricey product. So what it is? So foie gras is the liver of a duck or a goose that has been force fed with a tube during the last couple of weeks in, of its life, and the, the feeding occurs in a very measured way. It's not just the tube going down the throat and then pour everything in that you can. Mm-hmm. It's very measured and calibrated to produce. Um, a standard size fat liver. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., it's only ducks. Um, traditionally, in France, it's, it's geese. Okay. But but in the industry there today, in France, ninety five percent of production of foie gras is ducks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, only five percent is geese. And so, when we talk about foie gras in the U.S., we ha- it's only ducks here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of Canadian pro- production as well in Quebec mm-hmm. that gets exported to the U.S. Uh-huh. Um, again, that is all ducks as well. Okay. And so um, when we talk about goose liver, that is, it's it's similar, but it's something else. Okay. Um, so and what? so it is traditionally eaten in France um, at Christmas and New Year's, um, a holiday celebratory dish where you're supposed to eat a little bit mm-hmm. to kind of kick off your holiday meal. Right. Um, so the parallel here that I have told many people is to Thanksgiving turkey. Right, right, right. Um, it's a dish that gets associated with a holiday, with family and friends, and coming together around mm-hmm. the table. Got it. Because, you know, there's only so many livers to a duck that it would be, you know, um, slaughtered at this time of the year, post-harvest. So, 
That's that's mm-hmm. when you enjoy foie gras. But nowadays, of course, you can get foie gras any time of year. Um, Correct. That is until yeah, both here and in France. Right until a ban was called for um, by um, you know a, a, a major campaign hoisted by activism um, against foie gras production in California uh, successfully uh, created a ban in 2002 that went into effect in 2012. So no production of foie gras anymore in California. Right. And so the ban in California was production and sale. Mm-hmm. And so it put the one farm out of business that existed there. Right. Um, the ban was repealed in 2014. And mm-hmm. so now you can um, get foie gras legally at restaurants again. But um, the one farm obviously is, you know, gone. Right. So the activism, it sounds like there was a lot of things working against it. One, very few people knew much about foie gras and got to enjoy it. And in fact, those that did were sort of seen as, you know, elite snobs, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, not right. much. And very easy and right. very easy to attack, you know, snobby exactly. gourmet eaters. Mm-hmm. And then two, you know, there's really little tradition here, I guess none, of, of produ- producing mm-hmm. it. You mentioned the one farm, Sonoma Duck Farm or Sonoma Foie Gras Company. Sonoma Foie Gras. Right. Sonoma Foie Gras. Um, that was just really the only one. So there was no, no history to it, no tradition like they had in France. Right. Um, right. Well, there are also two farms. There are two farms in upstate New York as well right. and a very, very tiny one outside of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. That rate that produces maybe two thousand ducks a year. Mm-hmm. So, so, so perf- very very small. Right. So then, what happened? A, a perfect storm it seems of uh, campaigning. Right, and that was one of. I mean, that was one of. I think, and I argue in the book, one of the ways to go about attacking an industry. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can eliminate an industry, then you can use the word eliminate. Um, as opposed to having to make an industry reform its methods or reform its practices, mm-hmm. that um, people who are opposed to foie gras can claim a real victory by saying it's gone. You know, we don't have yes, it anymore. That's true. Um, part of the part of what I argue in my book, and I think is the case, though, is it's hard to tell Americans you can't have this anymore, or we're going to take this away from you, that it kind of goes against the American cultural ideal of consumer choice and don't tell me what to do. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that in many ways the controversy and the actions taken against this industry have created demand for it in this country. Right, so created more awareness. where journalists such as yourself are now fascinated by the topic, and, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. and many others, and so all of a sudden you have people saying, "What is this thing? I'm so interested in finding out about it. I would love to taste it. Let me go taste it. Hmm, I find this to be delicious." Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that demand and consumption will continue and will potentially rise. We will just maybe import more mm-hmm. foie gras from elsewhere, like I, from especially from Canada and Canadian farms. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting to see. And it's a moving story. Obviously, it's still evolving. Um, yeah. I had to cut my book off when I did to get it out the door. But um, we'll see what happens. That's cool. Um, it's a great story to keep following. It keeps you, let's say, hungry, if you will, for more. Um, yes, but, but, I will say I'm a little sick of it, though. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, but let's get on the, you know, from the point of view of the activists, um, when you hear about force feeding, um, it sounds inhumane. Uh, it sounds like torture, mm-hmm. um, and that was uh, 
that was basically the whole point of their criticism. Yes, that this is um, an inhumane, unethical project, Mm -hmm. and that we we as humane uh, human beings um, should shut this down. Right. And I understand that there is some criticism of the critics um, for sort of um, applying or attributing human feelings to ducks where or anthropomorphizing if that's the right word anthropomorphizing anthropomorphizing so and we're not sure if that's entirely appropriate because what feel what you know what is pain we're not really sure what level of pain there is to ducks Mm -hmm. um certain something that would seem so invasive and torturous to humans like being force-fed through a tube it sounds shocking but we're not really sure Exactly, you know, it could be horrible, but right. Do well, we, there what have do we know? been a number of scientific studies done in France, for the most part, mm-hmm. about force feeding and what this process did in terms of duck and goose biology mm-hmm. and liver chemistry and chemi- so biophysical studies. And for the most part, these studies have argued, found and argued, that it does not cause the ducks or geese extreme pain the way that we might think it would if it was us, if it was ascribing um, that type of that type of action of the tube to our bodies as human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, activists have claimed that these studies are all funded by the French industry, and so we shouldn't believe right. them. That's right. um, but there have been many studies done over the years. And there was some... Um, and mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Okay. I was going to say, and I think you're absolutely right, that anthropomorphizing, which means talking about or thinking about an animal like it was human, um, ascribing human characteristics to something else. I mean, this is where so much of the imagery of foie gras has been this powerful story. Because mm-hmm. the argument presents itself as, well, what if I shoved a tube down your throat? <laughs> exactly. You clutch, at your, you clutch at your throat and think about how much that would hurt, how much it hurts to choke on something. Mm-hmm. Um but this is a false analogy that ducks and geese and water birds have very different biology than we do. Their esophagi do not have nerve endings like ours do, and their esophagi also have a keratinous coating to them. So it feels, and I know this firsthand, it feels like your fingernails do when you get out of the shower. All right. Where yeah. they're firm but flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you bang on them, and you could feel it underneath, but it doesn't hurt or pinch the way it does if you touch skin. Right. That's that's really interesting. And you went and actually witnessed and helped the feeding of some ducks. So I didn't do any of the gavage myself. But right. I was present in, I think it was 15 different foie gras feeding facilities. And in addition to that, uh, factories, slaughterhouses, um, every step of the chain. Right. And what is that production. word again for the... For the na- There's a word for this process, mm. the traditional word. The process in French is called gavage. Gavage. Which is G-A-V-A-G-E. Yeah. And there's really no great trans- a direct translation into English. Uh-huh. Um, it means force-feeding, um, but it also means overfeeding hmm. or cram-feeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been, there have actually in the French media... Now are a number of jokes about Americans gavaging themselves, and so what do they know about foie gras? How can they tell us what to do or not to do when they gavage themselves? 
You can, um, you can see how this topic is really uncomfortable because I'm, I'm starting to like twitch a little nice. bit in my seat right now <laughs> talking about this. So um, let's mm-hmm, talk more about nice, uh, the, sort um, of the saga of what happens next. Um, but we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude, Michaela, and we'll be right back. Sounds great. Great. And this one is called French Entrance by Teeth People. We'll be right back. New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. All right, we're back chatting with Michaela D'Souza, who has written a book, Contested Taste, Foie Gras and the Politics of Food. Just to introduce yourself a little bit more, sorry I didn't do that at first, Michaela. You are an assistant professor of sociology at North Carolina State University. Excellent. That's right. All right, but you are also a foie gras expert now. Um, through this really fascinating book. And I, I really do say that um, it, it is a great story that leaves you with many lessons and thoughts when, you know, the next food controversy happens, which they will, and they do all yep. the time. It also makes a great Christmas present. It does, it does. Along with maybe a little tin <laughs> from, yeah. from France of foie gras, perhaps. Um, perhaps. Perhaps. Or, you know, leave it to their dis- discretion. Um, we were exactly. just talking about the, the, the process of gavage, um, which has been going on in France for, I guess, how long? Uh, nobody knows. So the story is that it goes back to France since before France was France. Mm-hmm. Um, that it actually, the, the story, the, what I call in um, the book, the foie gras fairy tale, <laughs> goes back to ancient Egypt. Wow. Where the ancient Egyptians recognized that water birds, um, like geese and ducks, but also probably swans and egrets and other birds that migrated, migratory water birds, were tastier, more delicious when you, you know, killed and ate them right before they migrated, that oh. they were storing up fat in their bodies right. for the trip. Mm. Um, and so found a way to turn that process into, um, or that, that natural process into something that could be controlled and manipulated. Right. So the beginning, the beginning of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is that foie gras production, ideas about how foie gras worked then spread um, across Europe from the Romans and from the Jewish diaspora, because, of course, Jews were the slaves in Egypt um, and were the ones who actually did the work of force-feeding the geese and water birds through hollow tubes, mm-hmm. um, or hollow reeds as tubes. Right. Um, and so the story is that this practice arrived in France um, in two different ways, in the southwest regions through the Romans in what was Gaul, and also in the Alsace-Strasbourg region in the northeast, because there was a large medieval Jewish population there. Right. Um, 
And so it ties to the history and the story of this land becoming what we know today as France. Cool. Um, All right. I know. So it's part then of the, the story. Family. Then goes. It mm-hmm. became so the dish became something that was served um, on royal courts and royal tables, um, and then in the post-revolution time also was a dish of the elite, um, mm-hmm. but was also a dish of the farmyard, of the barnyard, mm-hmm. that the story of traditional artisanal production is that, um, you know, the there's this iconic vision of the grandmother who lives on the farmyard, and part of her job to contribute to the household is to keep a vegetable garden and some animals, small animals, close to the house to raise for food for the family, like rabbits and ducks and chickens. Um, so it would have been the grandmother's job to feed a few geese in the fall, um, to stock up the family's larder for the winter, and then the livers would be sort of the special dish at Christmas right. time. Or maybe they'd sell a few to neighbors mm-hmm. or sell a few sell a few in the city to make a little bit of extra pin money. Mm, really cool. Um, so, okay, so the idea of um, giving a specialized sort of diet or ritual to an animal to get to produce a certain result of the the meat or the liver in this mm-hmm. case. Um, in that sense, it's sort of more similar to like Iberian pigs, for instance, which are raised on this very specialized diet of uh, I think like hazelnuts or something, and it creates yeah, the most luscious, and yeah, luscious exactly, Iberian yeah. ham, yeah. or maybe Wagyu beef. You know, things that we associate sort of with pampering that animal. Um, yeah, but in this very case, much so. Yeah. Very much so. Right. But in this case, it's um, it's fattening up those livers. Um, and that it's a very specialty product as mm-hmm. well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this is not your everyday product. Huh. Right. That's really interesting. So, okay, so now we all, are, I do at least, have this like sort of nostalgic image of a farmer, a very knowing, perhaps graying farmer, mm-hmm. um, you know, really carefully um, feeding his ducks and that's on a very small farm. And mm-hmm. that's the idea I get when I think of foie gras because so few, so little of it is produced, I mean, relative to other sorts of meats. It's very specialized still. It's a smaller mm-hmm. sort of industry. Is that the reality of the industry, though, today? Well, it is the reality for a small portion of the industry, mm-hmm. but not for the whole. Um, and this is something that I learned through my research that I thought that was my image as well. That's the image when I went to France that that's what I thought I was going to find. Mm-hmm. And I did find that, but I also found a 60, 70 year long process of industrialization at the hands of a few small companies and funding from the state, from the French state, to develop a multi level, multi chain industry um, to make this product available more um, regularly and available to more people. Okay. Um, yep. And so this, this image that you have of, this, of the small-scale farmer, whether it's a grandmother or an older man, you know, feeding in a traditional artisanal way, that accounts today for about 10% of overall production mm-hmm. amounts in France. I'm not sure of the overall number of producers because there are so many very small ones. Yeah. Um, but producers that I, small producers that I did speak with, they actually bemoan the loss of foie gras farms in their areas, in their communes, which is like a county or a town. Um, most of the industry in France is 
part of this vertically integrated production chain where you have different people Mm -hmm. raising the birds, gavaging the birds, slaughtering, and then processing the ducks into the different products that you Mm -hmm. find. Mm -hmm. Most of them are controlled by collectives or large companies that are now part of this kind of global multinational agribusiness Mm -hmm. world. Um, And so what's interesting is this 10% um, is the part that is very visible. So part of the image of what we have comes from the fact that there is this gastro-tourism industry based on foie gras, Ah. that we have these images, we see these pictures because Mm -hmm. this is what we see. To see the industrial chain, um, you need intermediaries, you need contacts, because it is not visible from the side of the road. Mm -hmm. Um, If you drive, go drive around in southwest France, what you see are these rustic signs inviting you to come visit this small farm and have a tasting Mm -hmm. um, and meet the ducks. Often these signs have ducks wearing bow ties and playing saxophones. Um, and there's some towns throughout the Southwest that are sort of foie gras Disneyland. Yeah, yeah. They have, you know, they have every store has foie gras products lined, lining the streets of these oh, beautiful, gosh. picturesque towns um, that you can go and or, with through tour agencies and visit some of these farms. You eat foie gras for every meal. Yeah. That it is, it really is. A foie gras Disneyland. Okay. Um, well, but what I have, what mm-hmm. I've often told people, it's kind of like going to a farmers market here, yeah. going to like the New York City Green Market, for example, and thinking of that that is how how all food is produced. Right. Right. And we sometimes Which, go to those leisure, uh, you know, farms for recreation to get a glimpse of, uh, you know, the cows munching on grass and so forth. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And for many people, for many Americans, and this is one of my arguments in the book. Seeing anything that doesn't look like some type of children's story is really jarring for most people. That we have very few images of what agriculture really looks like. Mm -hmm. So, so the successful sort of coup—not coup—I don't um, know—the activists against foie gras production in the United States, at least, were successful in um, Mm -hmm. forcing legislature in California for a while. What's next for foie gras now? In the U.S., that's a great question. Mm -hmm. Um, No one in their right mind would open a foie gras farm today, Mm -hmm. right? You would need, in terms of the funding, in terms of the political capital that you would need, um, in terms of knowing that you would be attacked from day one, legally and potentially, you know, in person as well. Yes, that is Um, what happened. It sounds like they were were personally attacked. Um, The the founder of the foie gras company in Sonoma was targeted mm-hmm. in he his was home. yeah and yeah. so that's that's um, not fun there was talk of another farm recently a talk of a farm opening actually in indiana and that quickly got squashed mm-hmm. um i really i don't think that anyone in their right mind would open a foie gras right. farm in this country today and I imagine, uh, but i don't mm-hmm. i'm sorry go, go ahead well i just imagine so many duck farms what are they doing with their livers maybe that could be i don't know yeah they could, but yeah. you'd be opening yourself up to a, quite a bit of scrutiny yeah. um, if you did that. But I don't see demand and consumption slowing down, mm-hmm. um, or maybe slowing down a little bit as tastes change and fads come and go. But I think foie gras, the product, is here to stay. Um, yeah. What I think will happen, and if well, if the two farms in upstate New York, if they close down 
And they might because they are, you know, dealing with lawsuits constantly from animal rights organizations. If the state of New York decides they don't want nothing to do with it anymore, um, then foie gras production in the U.S. will cease. Mm -hmm. But I think that what would happen then is we would simply import more from Canada um, or from China, which is developing foie gras farms as well. Well. Bring it all full circle then, globalization and then, yeah, small farms are... Mm-hmm. And so local. in some ways, I think it's one of those, you know, six of one, half dozen of the, half dozen of the other, that if the goal is to eliminate foie gras, what will happen is we might be eating more, foie, well, people who eat foie gras might be eating more that's actually produced in circumstances that I personally think are worse mm-hmm. than the farms today that the farms in upstate New York, the farm in Sonoma, they are using the old-school artisanal traditional methods Mm -hmm. that exist in Mm -hmm. France. They are not the industrial complexes Mm -hmm. that exist in France or the industrial complexes that exist here for chicken or turkey. Um, They're large, they're significantly sized farms, but they are nothing when it comes to animal agriculture. Exactly. Well, ironic, (laughs) if anything. Exactly. Yeah, it's not not six of one half dozen of the other. It's called shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, that's what the that's what the correct <laughs> expression is. That is so fascinating. Um, you know, I think the next time we have you know a gut reaction to food issues controversies, it's great to look into it a little bit more. And there's so much uh, mm-hmm. so much to chew on, if you will. And you've explored that beautifully in this really, I got to say, riveting book. I can put it down. Um, so oh, thank delightful. Thank you. That's so kind. Great. Well, I guess that's about all the time we have for today. I hope everyone got a good taste of this book, and there's much more to it. Um, so check out Contested Taste, the foie gras and the politics of food, maybe for a Christmas gift. Um, and thank you so much, Michaela, for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Excellent. So um, thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.